Hi, welcome to the Drawn Today podcast, where we encourage you to draw every day. In this episode, part two of our 2013 Helixcon wrap-up, Jason, Mark, and Alan give us their thoughts on the recent convention that they attended. Afterwards, we've got some more intimate artist discussion about issues relating to Helixcon and the illustration industry. Just ignore some of the background noise, and we think you'll enjoy being a fly on the wall to these intimate and interesting conversations. We are here to give a little bit of an Iluxcon uh, wrap-up update uh, to add to the rest of the podcast goodies that Mr. Sass is putting together. So today we have a few of the normal Drawn Today podcasters who were just recently attending Iluxcon last week. So why don't we get some introductions? Start with Alan. Uh, I'm Alan Douglas. You can find my work at alandouglasstudio.com. And Jason. And this is Jason Cheeseman Meyer. You can find my work at cheeseman-meyer.com. And I am Mark Harchar, and you can find my work at markharchar.com or Art of Mark Harchar on Facebook. So. We all just got back from Aluxcon last week, and this was the first year that it was in the new venue in Allentown, Pennsylvania, after having moved from Altoona. And uh, each of us had a different part in the show than we have in, in the past. Uh, specifically, there was a, a salon showcase and full booth exhibitor space uh, this year, whereas there was only exhibitor space and showcase tables. Uh, I know that Alan uh, had done the showcase in previous years, but was part of the salon this year. So how, what did you think of that experience, Alan? Um, I liked it a lot. I think uh, in a way you kind of get best of both worlds because you can uh, attend a lot of the presentations and panels that you want to and exhibit your work over the weekend. Um, so I think it's a, it's a good option if you're not in the main show or the showcase. Um, Would you have preferred to have been in the main show, or did this actually fit your schedule better? Um, I don't know. I was there for the whole time, and I'm not sure – that's a tough one. I, I could see the benefits of both, you know, the main show – you know, it's probably not so busy that you can't attend a panel if you want to. Um, some of the more interesting ones to you, but uh, you know, you're definitely tied down to your table a lot more, and, and it's, it's a lot longer days in a row, probably. Um, so that's a that's a tough one. I don't know. And the setup seemed a little different than the exhibitors' case, uh, exhibitors area in the showcase. So you. Would you mind describing what your setup looked like? Well, in the salon, they had kind of two main spaces. One of them was a, kind of a long, kind of a long narrow corridor. Um, that's where I was. I had work on both sides of the wall. Um, then that opened up into a kind of a larger, kind of more rectangular shaped gallery space with with a little bit higher ceilings. Um, but you know, it's it's in the museum, so you get museum lighting. Um, 
the traffic seemed to be pretty good, I thought, as far as the attendance go. I'd be interested to see how, how well it did, but it seemed like it was pretty busy. I, I noticed one benefit that you had being in that that particular portion where you were in was that unlike some other parts of the shows where people could just wander around, you were pretty much getting every bit of traffic that was coming through that area of the museum one way or the other, whether they were coming in or coming out. Yeah, that's true. I mean, if you want, if you were going to see any of the artists in the salon at all, you pretty much had to go by my space, which was nice. Um, I did notice through that your you, space. Yeah, through my space because it was on both <laughs> sides. That's true. Well, I worked kind of big this year, so I had to take up a little more space, and a few other artists had to do that too. But but uh, Pat made sure that everyone had. Had space to hang stuff, so everything worked out fine. It was actually kind of interesting because you've had some of the larger pieces in the show the last few years, and even though you had some large pieces again this year, uh, there were some pieces that just eclipsed your largest piece. <laughs> I know. And and uh, Mark is of course speaking it primarily of Donato's canvas that he brought. I know. It I was saw so him. big it didn't fit on the wall and had to wrap it around. <laughs> I saw on Facebook that day, the day I was leaving, I thought, I thought well, I'll bring some big paintings this time. And then I saw on Facebook, his is like nine feet wide or maybe even longer than that. I don't even remember. But, yeah, it's hard to top him, isn't it? Well, Dorian <laughs> did a pretty good job. Well, he kind of Dorian had his Dorian Getting the opportunity to check out his stuff was a high point of the show for me. Um. He's got a quality that I really admire in artists where his work look, looks great from every distance. When you get – you step 15 feet back and it's beautiful. You step, uh, you know, five feet from it and it looks great. You go right up to it. And it's not just interesting how he achieved those effects. It's aesthetically pleasing even when your nose is right up to the canvas. And I really love painters who pull that off. Yeah, it had an interesting abstract quality to it once you got up really close, yet, you know, the the 30-foot distance was still you know, an, an amazing viewpoint for all of the pieces that he had. And, and I think the smallest piece that maybe he had was, was three foot by four feet, perhaps, somewhere along those yeah, dimensions. Yeah, I think you're about right. But like uh, more and more people are painting larger. Well, I know... I know on the podcast that we had, the last podcast that was released, uh, Pat Wilshire was actually on there and, and made mention about how having a, a large piece for a show is, is a good uh, is a good incentive for individuals to, 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 to come over and take a look at your work. And it's, it's just eye-catching. Um, and I think people took that to heart. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it calls attention to the space a little bit, I think. Even if people end up being more interested in the smaller stuff, it, it brings them over, you know. And speaking of spaces, Jason. And certainly uh, Drew Baker's giant Darth Vader was a, an attention grabber uh, on on scale uh, value. That, uh, yeah, if we're talking about big paintings, we, we have to mention that one, don't we? We we sort of do because so many people were talking about it, and just because it's kind of amazing to see a life-size Darth Vader painting. 
the the fact that it is displayed in a crate in a way actually adds to that mystique of the painting. <laughs> just, I mean, this is from my point of view, but you know, seeing just a huge boxed crate open on one side and having a, a like you said, life size Darth Vader sticking out of it is it it's. It's to me. It actually added something that just having a, a simple frame on it wouldn't have done. Yeah, well, it's almost like the crate is the frame in a way. Yeah, and I think exactly. it made it easy for him to display because he can kind of just prop it up that way. Yeah, I saw him almost knock knock it over on someone at uh, Dragon Con two weeks ago, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> he he had built a, a new and improved uh, mount for it for. Uh, for Elixcon here. Oh, excellent. Mr. Safety Conscious Drew didn't want to crush anyone. <laughs> so Drew had that uh, painting in the showcase, and you were in the showcase as well, Jason. So uh, how did uh, your setup work out for you in, in the new in the new portion of the show, new hotel, new ballroom? Um, I think uh, the showcase was was one place in the, the changeover to Allentown that everybody agreed was a huge improvement. Um, uh, a lot more space. didn't feel as cramped as the, the room in Altoona and, um, yeah. And, and cool stuff. I got to, to run around and see a bunch of things. And, uh, so the space was great. I, uh, maybe spilled out a little bit over my allotted footprint, but not by much. And, um, oh, that was such a big room. I don't, I don't even think people would notice such a thing. Exactly. I think I could have, uh, taken over more than I did. Uh, probably shouldn't be saying this, uh, and still gotten away with it. But, um, no, I thought the, the, the amount of space was great. The lighting wasn't great. Um, there were spots in the room that were very good for lighting and spots in the room that weren't, um, but overall, I think everybody who had a, a, a table in the uh, showcase uh, was pleased with the new space. Um, and having it run uh, two nights instead of one um, was interesting. I think uh, the second night, especially towards the end, had uh, uh, sort of the foot traffic dwindled a little bit. Um I know I had a lot more conversations that second night with people instead of just trying to feel like I was hurting through the rows of, of art. I could yeah. stop and chat a little more. Um, I, I know a couple artists felt like they were kind of stuck at their table for that second night. And no one was coming by and no one was buying things, et cetera, et cetera, uh, you know, to the very end. But um, I think everyone agreed that having the second night was a, a plus. Um, that, uh, you know, it's just that much more time to talk with people and, uh, maybe someone saw your stuff the first night, but they really get a chance to come back and soak it in the next night. Um, now, what do you guys think about this as opposed to in Altoona? To me, it almost seemed like it was two conventions in one because a lot of people who were showcasing in the salon and the showcase showed up either real late Thursday or on Friday. So there was like a really influx of new artists and stuff coming in on the weekend. And you didn't really have that in Altoona. Most people were there from the, from the beginning. What did you guys think about that? You know, I hadn't thought about that at all, but I agree. Um, I, I noticed a couple friends rolling in 
Yeah. Well, Mark, you were one of them, right? You showed up uh, Friday, right? Yeah, I showed up Friday around uh, lunchtime. Um, the the thing you may not have noticed about that in, when it was in Altoona is because it was only a three day show. Uh, you know, so people may have That's showed up. True. Was it only three days? It was. It was. Okay. I think it was. Um, well, maybe it was a four day show. I it could be wrong. I could be wrong. I don't remember. Um, I do know that this is considered a five-day show, and this was a day longer. So um, I know that I used to show up on a, on Thursday morning in Altoona because I'd be able to get up early in the morning, drive there, and by 10 o'clock in the morning be there when the show started. Um, so, yeah. Uh, to, I, I don't know if I it's good or bad. I just noticed a ton of ton of new faces on the on Friday, so it's kind of made it interesting. Yeah, it was kind of a fun turnover. Instead of seeing everybody you saw yesterday, there was a whole new group of people coming in. Yeah, but then there were those people too who, um, in the main show, who were sitting there from Wednesday night through Sunday, um, and that probably was a little different experience than in the past, you know, an, an extra day of a show, um, you know, re- regardless of the show that you're going to having your booth is, can be a tiring experience. So, you know, whether it's two, three, four days, five days is probably, yeah, it makes it a bigger commitment. That's for sure. Definitely. Um, but you know, I would say Illixcon's probably the least, not that I go to a lot of conventions, but it seems like it would be the least grueling of them all just because of the laid-back atmosphere um, compared to some of the other ones, from what I hear. Yeah, I I, I think I agree with that. There, if, you know, you know, you know, the other main con I've got a lot of experience with is uh, San Diego, and working that floor is absolutely exhausting. Um just to try to get attention in that huge throng of people. And in Illixcon, everyone is there because they're already interested in the sorts of things you do. Um, so it's a, um, a a lot more natural camaraderie just comes right out of it because of that. Well, I can say that um, I did enjoy having the two days in the showcase space where I had my table. Um, I, I did see people coming in the second day that uh, were there the first day that, you know, were interested in different pieces and different artists. Uh, and they had the opportunity then to come back and, and see, you know, the art a second time and, and after they had gone through the, the show because there were also people who were attending the show who were only there for the weekend um, as opposed to the whole show. So, they got to not only see the, the main show on, say, Saturday, but they also then got to see that second day uh, of the showcase uh, because maybe they hadn't been in town or maybe they only drove in for the day or, or for the weekend, you know, so, um, Saturday night to overnight to Sunday. Uh, so there was, there was definitely a lot of different benefits that were gained from the, the, the different time frame and the different setup. Um, overall, I, I can say that the larger room was a benefit because it allowed more artists to show their work. I know the, the larger room in some cases had to, had a different set of logistical issues that needed to be overcome. Uh, 
for example, in, in Altoona, there was basically a, a single loop of artists around the, uh, the ballroom. Uh, in this ballroom, there were rows, so people were able to go up and down the rows. And I just happened to be in one of the final rows where I had the choice of which direction to face my artwork. And since I pr- had pretty much a gorilla setup since I flew in on a plane and, you know, I, I was only able to, to bring with me what I can bring. Uh, I was able to, to face out my art and my display towards the, the particular outside ring, yet the, there were still people walking through the aisles behind my setup, and the backside of the, my setup was very much ghetto. <laughs> Mine too. Uh, Don't feel bad, Mark. But at least in the aisles in between, there were other artists sitting behind you, which kind of gave uh, that buffer zone. Um, so I, I just chose a spot because I kind of got there a little bit late, um, which I, I didn't have that buffer zone. So I would definitely try to keep that in mind for, for next year if I was going to be in the showcase in case I don't get in the salon this year. But uh, But I digress. One thing I do like a lot better about Allentown is just the vicinity of the the venues. Everything was easily walkable. You didn't have to take a car from the hotel. Oh, that was such to a the beautiful. gallery space. Yeah, and the food options I thought were and the too. food. Yeah, I, we had to come to that. There was some great food in Allentown. There was a lot of great food in Allentown. Yeah, I think there was definitely better choices as, as far as. Um, places to stay, places to eat than in uh, Altoona. I mean, I'm pretty sure that people got tired of eating hot dogs at Sheets and Panera muffins in the morning um, <laughs> in Altoona. And, but uh, the, that that main street, that main uh, square section in, in Allentown did have a number of restaurants and actually even had a number of bars and clubs too that uh, I'm sure some people may have stopped for a drink and, and what have you. Uh, that just weren't available in Altoona. Yeah, I was there for the full five days, and there were a couple places that I had wanted to go and check out, and I just didn't have have the opportunity to, um, which is sort of the polar opposite from Altoona, where on the first day you have eaten at both places. <laughs> <laughs> it was also nice in the museum itself. They had a, a little cafe set up, so people worked oh, in their tables. the museum tables. cafe was great. Yeah, people could just bop in there for literally ten minutes, grab something to eat it, and and get back to their tables instead of having to put up a sign and leave for an hour or whatever. The so. other the other thing that I found was good about that particular locale compared to say, you know, Philadelphia, New York, Boston, you know, whatever other bigger city, um, parking wasn't a problem either. Uh, you know, it wasn't hard to get a meter. It was relatively cheap to park in a parking garage. Uh, you know, you can get away with a couple dollars and park all day in a parking garage. Uh, you know, I've, I've driven into places like Comic Con, New York Comic Con, and uh, driven into Philadelphia times, and you know, you're spending ten, twenty, thirty dollars for parking a day. Right. So. That was definitely a benefit. Even they, they had enough places to park, and it didn't cost a lot if you had a car. And, and the other thing we can't really look past to, um, is, you know, you both you guys drove in, but there are people coming in from uh, across the world 
I mean, literally, you know, Peter Maselja coming in from, from the Netherlands, people coming in from the West Coast, uh, the, the, Allentown Airport, which is an international airport and does have direct flights from a lot of places, was literally like four to five miles from from the museum. Uh, you know, a short cab ride or, or someone who had a car can just take a run from the museum to, to pick someone up if they needed to. I think that worked. That was one of the ma- main reasons that I was able to fly in because I had a direct flight in from Orlando, and in two hours I was able to, to, to make it just directly you know, from my local airport right to Allentown. Yeah, I think Altoona was a little tricky as far as that goes. Yeah, yeah you couldn't get there from here or anywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was a nice drive for me either way. So, <laughs> Allentown's probably about the same distance drive, maybe maybe a little more. But for me, that that's not even an issue. They're about the same. So overall, the locale seemed uh, like a, a better choice. Uh, the parking arrangements, the hotel arrangements, and the, and the gallery spaces all seemed very um, amiable um, for everybody involved. The the one thing I would like to bring up is the the lecture space that was available compared to Altoona, and, and Jason probably has the best experience with this uh, being that this year you were actually – had given one of the lectures uh, as opposed to attending in previous years. So you want to talk about that at all, Jason? Um, well, I think the, uh, the the lecture space in Altoona, it was a little nicer. Uh, it, it The AV was all built in and stuff, and it was uh, great big lecture halls that were, were really set up in that. But that said, um, uh, you know, Content is key, and uh, the I I think my my lecture went great. I, I had a ball doing it, um, and I went and saw a bunch of the other lectures, and uh, they were they were top notch and didn't feel like they were held back um, because they didn't have the AV bells and whistles that we had in Altoona. That that was that was one thing that I had noticed that to me seemed like a um, a big difference was that uh, I think the Altoona setup was done on uh, Penn State campus I believe it was uh, so their conference rooms and everything were set up you know with the student body in mind to be able to give lectures and and you know AV experiences for for different classes that people are paying huge amounts of money for. So uh, I kind of understood that they had a, a different type of setup. I, I did notice that this, it was more – some of the rooms looked almost like art rooms, like that the – Well, it, is yeah, an, it was an art school, right? Or it is an art yeah, school. Yeah, it is an art school, and they they used three rooms. Uh, downstairs, they had a, uh, a sort of front conference room, um, which was the, the largest room. And then they we commandeered <laughs> uh, one of the studio art classrooms. You know, it had the uh, the platonic solid planes for uh, for drawing classes in the back and uh, sink to washer brushes and everything. Um, but was the best room for for uh, showing slides. Um, so a bunch of us used it. And then upstairs. Um, was a room with actually a, a lovely view and, and wraparound windows um, that was pretty darn good for uh, um, 
oil painting demos and that sort of thing. Yeah, I did notice that the natural light coming into that room must have been uh, fantastic for for the art demonstrations, even though I didn't get to see any of those <laughs> since I came in late, as Alan mentioned. <laughs> yeah, I only made it to one, but yeah, it was a nice space for, for that sort of thing. And some of the other yeah. rooms for the pure pure lectures, the, the panel lectures, uh, you know, there was definitely more than enough space and more than enough uh uh, seating, because that was one issue that did pop up in in Altoona, where you know there were constantly people standing outside the doors of the room, sitting on the floors, uh, just because there wasn't enough seating available. Yeah, that's true. yeah. But I I feel like actually I I could be wrong, but I think attendance for the lectures in Altoona was a little higher. Um. That uh, a lot of that might be what's going on at the time, you know. You got to remember, like that Friday, all the salon or no, yeah, that Friday, all the salon artists were hanging their stuff. Yeah, and and um, but even some of the the smaller uh, draws, if you will, at Altoona got some standing room only in some rooms. Um, that's seated just as many people I think as the ones in Allentown um, but something about the, the structure of the show and maybe because no I, was, I thought for, for a second that perhaps it had something to do with uh, the you had to actually leave the main exhibit hall and go across the street in Allentown and you didn't have to do that in uh, Altoona but I don't think that was the deal I think it was I think, Alan, I think you're on it about just – Well, that's not true. There are more it, things going on. Even in Altoona, you had to leave the, the main show space and right. go and, in. And, go and, in. I and mean, walk down was, the street. But yeah. next door. Yeah, next – it wasn't. Next well, door. There was nothing in between the two. You just had to okay, step there, out on the sidewalk. There's one two-late street. <laughs> go, down, go down 15 feet and then go back in to the building. As opposed to crossing the 15-foot-wide street. Crossing, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've admitted that, that my... Of half of I've one. admitted that my point was stupid. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess uh, a big question then is, are you guys going to be going back next year? Oh, yeah. I think so. Oh, yeah. I'll go back. Will you try to do the same thing you did this year? Because I know I would like to try to get a space in the weekend salon um, this coming next, this coming year. I've done yeah, that. I, mean, I don't know how they're going to set it up. And if it, I don't know if it's a jury thing like it was last year or I'm sure or it will be. Um, yeah. I've, I've done that showcase now. I think this is the, this was the fourth time I did the showcase. So I'm hoping that potentially maybe I could possibly jury into the, the salon this coming year, hopefully, but you know. I'll let you. <laughs> I have no say. Um, I will be going back, though. It was a relatively easy trip for me to make. Um, I Aren't learned... you from that area, too? I'm originally from about 45 minutes north of there. So um, my my uncle and aunt lived in that town um, for their whole lives. My brother lives about 15 minutes away. So uh, I was actually able to stay with him and get some some family time in too in the, during the show, um, get up, have breakfast with them, head to the show and stuff like that. So um, all in all, it worked out relatively well for me. 
the, uh, the the biggest the biggest thing that was an issue for me was that uh, I initially couldn't get a showcase table, and I hadn't juried into the salon. Didn't, they, didn't the tables last like five minutes or something? Four. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so it was actually a last minute decision for me because some extra tables had opened up, some people had canceled. Um, and I was on the waiting list and was offered a table. Um, it, it just so happened that I was, I, I had been kicking around the idea of, of coming up for that weekend anyway and seeing family and stopping off and, you know, driving through and trying to catch some of you guys that were going to be there to say hi. Um, so I just ended up showing up but that's kind of why my setup was a bit gorilla because it was a last minute thing i had just come back from dragon con uh i i needed to paint a new painting to get there i couldn't ship it i had to take it on the plane i had to do all kinds of crazy things to be able to display so um i I have come to conclusion that every single year some people drop out of the showcase drop out of the main show whatever for whatever reason they just can't exhibit whether it's sickness or whatever so there seems to be some last-minute opportunities every year. Yeah. Not that you can kind of count on it, but that seems to be the trend. Hey, guys. You know what we never discussed was the, the main exhibit, the main hall itself. No, we did not. Anybody want to weigh in on that, or do we figure that uh, that other people have covered that well enough? Well, I mean, I like the museum the museum space, it was kind of, there was one big main room with higher ceilings and kind of two offshoot galleries. Was that right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it still had a pretty intimate feel. Um, there's something about the uniqueness of the space in Altoona that I liked where you can kind of look down on the whole space. Um, but I think this, this affords more opportunities for probably a few more artists and probably a little bit bigger paintings. Um, uh, I don't know. Seemed to work out pretty well. I thought. What'd you guys think? No, I, I agree. It was funny because I, I talked with a, a couple people who had been in the the main show in Altoona and in Allentown, and a couple of them said um, they missed Altoona. That it had a couple things about that space were just better for your displaying work, um, better for the flow of traffic, but then other people said that Allentown beat it just hands down, like no comparison at all. Um, so I, I think that's just the luck of the draw and personal taste for you. I personally thought, uh, yeah, I think I like the new space better. Um, weighing in on this topic, and this is all just personal prefer- preference, but uh, um, the... Allentown Art Museum ultimately is designed as an art museum um, and not necessarily an exhibition hall. So when I saw the At the Edge show there, I thought it was fantastic. I thought the space was great. It, it, the displays you know, worked out well. The flow of the room um, was wonderful for just purely seeing the art. But I think for as an exhibition space, my personal preference is the – the size of the room in Altoona, the, the high ceilings, the the balcony areas where you can look down, uh, you know, at the exhibitor space. Uh, I did enjoy that space. Uh, I can't I can't lie there. Um, 
I, I think that the, the art museum is a perfectly adequate venue and there were definitely pluses to it. Um, but I do think I like the Altoona space as far as the main exhibition hall. Now, now the, the, uh, the salon, you know, that, that, that wasn't afforded in Altoona. So the, the fact that that opened it up was, was definitely a benefit for the new location. So, yeah, there's plus, that, there's pluses and minuses for everything. Yeah. That plus, I mean, you got to remember one of the main purposes of moving it to a museum is to elevate the whole genre, right? So that people see it on museum walls. Um, so I think having in a museum did that and still kind of maintain the intimacy of the original Ilixcon. Um, you know, maybe it's not, I personally do like the interesting space in Altoona, but you know, the space in the museum is great too. And you get the benefit of being able to have extra artists, which helps a lot too. So, and I did hear a lot of people mention that they didn't know about the show. They hadn't heard about the show and it was only either the day before or, or that day that they had seen some promotional uh, information come out about it from the the local museum uh, in some of the local papers and different things that it was a draw uh, for people to come see it just because it was in that venue. Whereas if it was in, you know, a hotel or a, you know, a conference space somewhere else that may not have been a draw, but since it was in that venue, uh, people were interested. Yeah, and having a downtown probably brings in a lot more foot traffic, and they did have it open to the public on the weekend, right? Yeah. I'd be interested to hear how, uh, how the muse- from the museum's point of view, what the attendance was like and stuff compared to what they normally exhibit, you know? Oh, yeah, that would be cool to hear. Because I actually went through and checked out the, uh, the museum's collection, and uh, there was some cool stuff there. Um, and I had fun checking it out. Yeah. I, d- I think it definitely as far as foot traffic, just anecdotally, the uh, the one brew pub that we were eating at, they seemed pretty overwhelmed at the amount of uh, traffic that they were getting on that yeah. particular weekend that they didn't seem like that they were used to. So, yeah. Good uh, beer there, by the way. I wouldn't be surprised if they'll be promoting the uh, Aluxcon weekend next year. <laughs> Get some extra waiters on staff. Well, I do remember, yeah, we would all, as soon as the museum closed, we'd have like kind of a race to the brew pub to see. Because if you got there too late, you'd have like an hour and a half wait. <laughs> if you got there in time, you were golden. So these crowds of people speed walking to the brew yeah, pub. Yeah, just beat, pretty good. Beat, beat the crowd of 20 behind you. And then other table for 20, please. I also don't know if you guys made it to the bar in the hotel at all after the the showcase, but I think they were a little bit overwhelmed by the amount of people in there. I mean, a, a hotel bar probably is usually pretty sedate, but there were just throngs of people in there for, for a few straight nights that the bartenders looked like they were just running around like chickens with their heads cut off. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they, well, they, I, heard, I, heard, I did overhear Pat. I forget who he was talking to, but he did mention that uh, – you know, when there's local conventions in Allentown, a lot of times the people don't actually show up. But for this, everyone shows up. <laughs> so maybe they were a little surprised because of that. I don't know. 
Well, I know they have a lot of conventions and things at the Stabler Arena, which is up the road a bit, and it's you know not in the downtown just because they have a big arena space and um, there's big home shows and different things and parking right there. So it, it's there's there's probably a lot of things that go on in what you would consider Allentown, but not in the right in the downtown there. Uh, so yeah, I'm sure I it's think- a different experience for. So I think overall, the benefits are much better in Allentown, and oh, hands down, any, yes, yeah. Any little wrinkles I'm sure could be worked out, and it'll just be even better next year. Yeah, I don't yep. doubt it. So I know Mr. Sass has some interviews and some other interesting things coming on. He's done some. Uh, speaking with other attendees for the show over some beers, some of those restaurants we were just discussing. Um, and there'll be some extra portions and bonus material uh, for the these podcasts or group of podcasts. So I think the listeners should be getting a pretty good overall understanding of the experience that we've all had, and hopefully they'll be able to make it next year. All right. We never did talk about all the good art there, but there's lots of good art. Oh, yeah, good art, good art. Go see the good art. <laughs> That's just a given when it comes to a lot of stuff. I guess so. I think I'm so. assuming That's everybody what it's knows for. what it is. But. All right, gentlemen. Well, thank you for sharing your experiences this year, this year's LuxCon. Um, I guess we'll sign out. So, Alan, you want to give us your uh, website again? Uh, alandouglasstudio.com and Jason cheeseman-meyer.com and mine is markharchar.com so you guys have a good night and thanks for the talk Dinner time, last day of Illixcon. Illixcon is wrapped up. It's over. I'm with uh, Eric Valhagen, and uh, Eric's got an interesting life story. He's got a very fine art sensibility to illustration, and uh, he's new to magic, but uh, he's sort of... turn some heads and and it has a very unique style and take on the subject matter so we're talking to Eric about his background and and how this translates into magic and uh, and his thoughts on painting so Eric uh, tell us about your background what what did you do in college well I went I attended the Colorado Institute of Art and I graduated in 1983 and right out of college I went up to 83 uh, I was like 10 years old <laughs> um, I graduated when I was 19 it was a two year uh, college course and uh, went up to Portland, Oregon and was a freelance illustrator for about four years up there and had a rep did a wide variety of subjects. Was this like localized illustration? Like yes. like the people in your city are commissioning for local magazines? And, yes. Okay. And uh, had a rep and um, 
Just did a lot of local stuff and then uh, moved back to New Mexico and was a freelance illustrator there for probably about 12 more years. And then I got just really burnt out on the field. It uh, wasn't what I wanted to do. So I went into construction and uh, built, built homes and uh, remodels for about 12 years. And my body said, okay, you're too old for that. And so I just decided, well, what did I really wanted to do? And it was fantasy art. I was uh, into it in high school. I loved the work of Frank Frazetta. And thought, well, it's, the industry has really kind of grown towards fantasy art. There were the Spectrum books and all the gaming industry, so it was a huge market. And so I entered uh, Spectrum Spectrum 17, and I got in, and uh, it just started opening doors. I got into eight, Spectrum 18, Spectrum 19. Spectrum 20 is coming out. Didn't get into that, but that's all right. Uh, but when I got into 17, uh, Pat and Jeannie Wilshire that run the Electron show, they contacted me and say, hey, we'd love for you to show. And, and I had no idea what Electron was. And when I found out what it was, and all these high-profile, high-name fantasy artists, I was blown away. I was really shocked and loved. The venue of being able to present my art along with those high-caliber artists, I was really quite stunned at that prospect and scared and intimidated and stuff. But I came out, and the coolest thing was that all of these people were just really down to earth. There was no ego ego involved, and uh, it was great. And that was in 2011, and then I uh, came back in 2012, and we're just wrapping up the 2013 show, and each year has been awesome, and with no regrets whatsoever. And the other thing that was uh, interesting for me was I got to a point where I did not want to be laying on my deathbed looking back and saying, I wish I had. I had the... I wanted to say, at least I tried. And so, and I tried, and I find myself among some awesome artists and some awesome people, and really have no regrets whatsoever. Um, I think if I have any regret is that I don't have the energy <laughs> to, to do more artwork. Other than that, uh, life is great. So, Eric, I think your uh, your story is going to appeal to a lot of people because, I mean, this industry is made up of people of all stripes, you know, students, lovers of art, and, and there's definitely a contingent of people that love fantasy art, have put it off, have adored it from a distance for a long time. And, uh, you know, once you hit middle age, you don't want to waste time. You want to get right in. This is my feeling anyways, but uh, 
but enjoy the things that you really want to do. And, and, uh, and Eric, I think your story is going to resonate because it's interesting that you were in and out of illustration and re-emerged in the fantasy field, which is something that I, I get the sense is finally uh, finally satisfying your spiritual side. So can you talk about coming into the field after being in illustration, paying some dues, and uh, and being refreshed about it all? I find that uh, just being a part of a genre that I always wanted to do since I was in high school is uh, really rewarding. It really is. It's uh, I enjoy the the imagination that can be put on canvas and, and just exploring the, the limitless possibilities that the field offers. Uh, there are no limits, there are no restrictions, there are no limits to what you can put down on canvas other than your own imagination and abilities. And so when you have a limitless possibility, uh, it's, it's really awe-inspiring, really. It's, um, You're not going to get bored. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, in Illustrator's 22, no, Illustrator's 18, there's a wonderful quote by an artist by the name of Robert Heindel. And Robert Heindel is most known for his ballet paintings. He was an artist uh, slash illustrator that did some work for uh, ball, uh, for the ballet in England and was really known as the Degas of our time. Well, one of the things that he said in that illustrator's annual was what we do is really kind of uh, pointless and so forth, but he, but he ended on a wonderful note. He said, so why not be extraordinary? And I thought that was so cool that by unleashing what you can do, you should do. And I really, really like that. So let me try to digest that, what you said. The quote was again... Well, he, he was talking about the illustration field in general, that we'll do artwork for magazines, for books, for advertising, and it really is kind of, to some degree, kind of pointless. I mean, when you think about the world struggles, the problems in the world, that what artists or illustrators do is, you know, kind of irrelevant decoration. Yeah. So he ended by saying, so why not be extraordinary? You know, why not really be a master of the craft? Really pursue the visual, limitless possibilities of your creation. I think that's very interesting. I mean, like, that comes back to art being intrinsically worthless. It's worth only what the viewer is willing to pay for it. It's, uh, it only really is valuable for its function or for how it inspires. So 
So it's up to you to be inspiring. It's up to you to take it to that level where its qualities are undeniably spectacular. Absolutely. Absolutely. You, uh, you must be, I think that when an artist of our time can be compared to uh, an artist of the past like that, Robert Heindel being uh, an artist of our generation, or a gen- I guess a, a couple decades ago in the 80s was when his reign was really... Unbelievable. I mean, he was doing some beautiful stuff. He was doing uh, pastels and oils on linen. And when you, the public was comparing him to Degas, I mean, that is really surprising. If you really think about that, that an illustrator of art is being compared to a fine artist from 100 years before. Well, I'm not really sure what Degas was. That is day day. Maybe 80 years ago, 50 years ago. But anyway, he, I mean, you just don't hear that these days. So I just find that really inspirational and attainable if you believe it in yourself and you want to do that. I think that really speaks to. That's a very, very deep subject that you could get into for hours. Oh, absolutely. This is this is like parts parts power to either be banal and useless or affect millions and millions of people over an entire span of human history. I, I think it's, if you think of, it, of that in that terms, it can be awfully daunting. The bottom line is just do the best art that you can do and let uh, your peers, uh, your generation judge you on what you're capable of doing and just do the, the best that you can do have fun with it and look at it in a way as like walking through a labyrinth you're going to walk in the dead ends you'll have to double back but eventually you'll work your way through that labyrinth and in that labyrinth being not only life but the art itself you're trying to find what works for you and that's the bottom line is that every artist every illustrator it's given a sense, a certain sense of visual problems that they have to solve visually, and we are problem solvers, and it is our responsibility, duty, calling, calling, yeah, to solve those problems visually, and if you can solve those in a very unique visual way, people will respond. And and be honest in that uh, resolution. People will respond to it. One of the things that's been the most surprising and rewarding aspects of Electron and the gathering of all our of the illustrators is that there is really no ego that I've discovered. It is just down-to-earth artists. We all know the same problems. We all know the same struggles and are truthful in those struggles to produce the best art that we can produce. The coolest thing is that there really is no 
right or wrong creation. It's just the uh, creating the best that we can create. And if you look at the diversity of art that is created, and that all of it is correct in its own way, that's very cool. That really is. Yeah, I think the illustration community, I mean, we've got so many common threads running, you know, similar clients, similar financial constraints, similar working hours. But underneath it all, there's just a, a toil, a labor, and a mental capacity that's shared amongst us. You know, we're going through the same mental gymnastics. We're solving the same problems day in and day out. Absolutely. Absolutely. said, yeah, that all went out with hats. <laughs> he just like, right at the point. <laughs> all went out with hats. Well, we're at Ilixcon here, Sunday morning, at the diner that is uh, taking way too damn long to get our food. And we're discussing the de- general downward sky- uh, spiral of American culture. So apparently uh, the end game of uh, American culture is, is the Snuggie. Mike thought it was a sweatpants, and I corrected him. No, I said, we're at sweatpants right now, so what's what's beyond sweatpants, you know? <laughs> I got my sweatpants, I got my uh, inappropriately labeled sports drinks and vitamin water, and I'm watching Jerry Springer. Mike doesn't um, like America. He thinks we're all just lazy and we don't speak correctly. Don't say A enough. <laughs> no, the funny thing is we're, we're just talking about the funny little words that exist, you know, on one side of the border and not the other side. So I was asking, what is what is wheat bread? Because all bread is wheat bread. All bread's made of wheat, so it's like asking, do you want milk or cow's milk? Uh... Now, what was that first one made out of? <laughs> Do you want bread or wheat bread? And, and bread, as everybody knows, is like, you know, isolated soy protein mixed with cornstarch. <laughs> I, I think you're just over putting too much emphasis on the, on the left out word whole in the whole wheat description. <laughs> it's just too serious. Well, you still can't tell me what American cheese is. That's right, I can't. I, that, that stumped me. Is that cheese with, like, uh, an American flag in the corner, a little logo? I guess it just <laughs> must be cheese with extra litter, because you just have those two sticks of plastic. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just like... <laughs> extra litter. You can have cheese, but you have to have two pieces of plastic to throw away on the ground. Um, but I guess that makes it American. American. <laughs> you get provolone or something, you're classy. It's between like a huge stack of provolone in between two pieces of wax paper. Right, right. American like cheese, you have one piece of cheese in between two pieces of plastic. Right, and you're supporting local industry. Craft. <laughs> so I guess one of the interesting things we were talking about this morning is... Uh, is the Art Renewal Center sales. Yeah. Um, apparently... Fred Ross and his daughter. Uh, the Art Renewal Center, for anybody who doesn't know, is an online website that purports to support, um, you know, traditional methods and craft-based 
painting and sort of roll back time a little bit, but uh, provide sort of a central repository for information and and uh, they have their uh, their yearly salon, which is uh, intended to showcase the new versions of this sort of art and uh, and award prizes and everything and and uh, I guess through Pat and Jeannie's involvement with them last year, there was the imaginative realism category added. And I guess they're walking around the con now, uh, picking up some pieces. So uh, I'm here with Ryan Pankost and uh, my buddy Kata Hopkinson. And uh, so Ryan, they came by your table and picked up a couple things, or, or one thing. Um, can you comment on what that means to you, or sort of if that is indicative of a trend, or sort of how is that different than Joe Fan? Oh, it means it means a lot more because as a traditional artist, you kind of have a emotional connection with your art, and so it means a lot when you know it's going to a good home, and rather than just someone's basement or off to eBay. Um, and I know that Fred is going to take good care of the piece. Um, and I'm a little bit surprised he made the choice he made, just because he bought a, uh, a magic a magic card art, um, which I didn't think he'd go for, but apparently it spoke to him and um, seemed very anxious and and happy to take it home. So you know that's really interesting. Like he probably has no idea what it is, like as far as it's published provenance or that's, the gaming aspect. That's or, probably true. And he chose a piece that had like these crazy zombies in the background so it was you know it was it, it was a thrill really to see him come by and, and like my work but it is a very traditional looking piece it's got well, period clothing in it that's true and it's painted with sort of a low light renaissance sensibility yeah I, ho- I hope I'm the first zombie in, its, in, its collection. <laughs> in, the, in the ARC collection yeah he probably hasn't noticed there's a zombie in the background <laughs> but I, I think what happens sometimes is that um uh, and we we all might fall prey to it as we might often think of uh, tradition uh, as being straight-jacketed in uh, kind of frozen in, in, in amber kind of aspect to the old works when it's it's actually more of a spirit of the thing because um, as my my former teacher John Angel said that um, what was it he said <laughs> he said that the old painters weren't fools they would use whatever was current uh, technologically speaking to help them get their works done so whether they used optical devices or not um, they it, it didn't um, impact on the fact that they also learned to draw and paint first but they used whatever tools were necessary whatever subject matter was uh, was called for at the time and they put this the spirit um, that lies all be, lies underneath all of that. Yeah. Well, they yeah. I mean, they're working with with their own clients and their own limitations and their own costuming and their own. You know, everything is there's limits all around them. And then zoomed back in history now, you know, we don't really know exactly what was going on in the genesis of any of those paintings, but. And so we probably view it a little more with rose-colored glasses. And there's probably not a huge jump between angels and demons and cherubs to zombies, it's, it's, really. It's, it's, it it's exactly the it. same thing. And then, um, I mean, look at Horonis Bosch. Uh, yeah. the, I think the, 
and I'm actually I'm thinking about it as I'm, as I'm saying this. The it was the, the information was passed on from by hand to mouth for hundreds of years, and then for a period of time, it was lost for whatever reason, or it it was hidden for whatever reason. And I think it's that it's that period of time where 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 it kind of fell under the radar that causes us now to consider the time before that to be tradition. If, if, if the information kept flowing, um, things would have evolved and uh, we wouldn't think of a, of a schism between now and then. It would all be part of this... It would all be part of the same thought process. Yeah. It's just time and also the fact that, you know, there's no podcasts of, you know, <laughs> of uh, Michelangelo sitting around right. in uh, Renaissance Florence bitching about X, Y, or Z, or, <laughs> you know, talking it in the sense of a commission and not, you know, right. Though some of those letters do exist. Some of those letters do exist where the painters are talking about, you know, why is this dude doing this to me? Why right. is he hiring someone to paint over my stuff? Yeah. But, you know, but the general public, you know, probably views old yellowed paintings in museums as like, you know, they're artifacts and they're, they're these things that are, are different from today. And right. so we sort of have to like educate them, but educate ourselves and, and almost like have a, a shift in consciousness that, you know, there is no difference. And I guess the real connoisseurs probably are on that level. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think a lot of people are under the impression that the last good painter died in like 1700 and there's no way we can ever get back to that level of painterly uh, accomplishment I, I think, used to I, think like that and yeah. I think I think that's just a, a falsehood that we've all just kind of bought into um, because our paintings don't look like old antique paintings because they, they're new and not seven, you know, 300 years old we think we can't paint like that well we there's do. qualities our paintings don't have but then there's qualities in our paintings that they don't that they don't have yeah. exactly so, it's apples and oranges. I mean, it's kind of funny if you walk around the Louvre and you you basically look for fantasy art in an old museum because there's lots of it. Yeah. And the monster design, the creature design is terrible. It's yeah. laughable, right? Yeah. So, we have that that uh, vocabulary now, and we're building upon those developments and what other people have brought to the table. Right. But, I mean. We have things that they didn't have. We have, you know, probably better sensibilities and lighting and cinematography and costume design and whatnot. But we don't see their limits. We just see it as a package. And yeah. we have built-in reverence for it. But again, the um, that period of time where it was difficult for that information to flow as it did previously, it causes us now to... <laughs> to sometimes have an us versus them kind of a mentality when um, if the information flowed and wasn't hidden we wouldn't be thinking like that we would just be getting the work done yeah. so um, I think in the continued revisiting of the information that we want from the past and, and continuing to combine it with the the, uh, the impetus for works that, that we currently want to do um, by, by virtue of the fact that, that, that more work is being done and more and more work is, is being done, uh, as long as the quality is kept high and the abundance is there, we don't even have to really think about re-educating the public. It will happen automatically uh, by virtue of the, the amount of work and, and, and the quality and the standards. We can always um, hope. <laughs> well, it, yeah. An interesting thing, too, is like getting into the nuts and bolts of 
what is the time period where a piece of work or an artist transitions from new and not vetted and not not uh, not understood to be a master to then a master you know because what is that 30 years 50 years right. 100 years if you look at say a lot of the old guard fantasy illustrators I think Keda and I were talking in the hotel room last night like they just they don't compete with the young crop of illustrators simply because there's this built-in reverence for their right. work right and you, you can't compare them. Um, right or wrong, I don't know. Like really. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm hoping to get to the point where people say my work is great, and I can make an, uh, anatomical mistakes, and people will still think it's a masterpiece. You know, because I think that's a lot of what happens. You get a reverence for somebody, and it, their mistakes don't matter anymore. Right. Exactly. So I'm kind of hoping to survive long enough in the industry to get to that point where people kind of look past my mistakes and just take it as a masterpiece, and then it's off the easel. Right. Uh, like my friend, my friend Mark Harchar had a really nice painting he just completed uh, right before Elixcon, and everyone was quite impressed with it. Uh, a single figure of a, a female elf with a bow. And I said to him, this is a really nice piece, Mark. Uh, the face wasn't, you know, 100% perfect. Yeah. He had to do it really fast before I came. But I, I told him, you know, if, if that face was perfect, if you put a little more time into it, and you signed it, you know, Donato on the bottom, or you signed it, you know, somebody else who has, has gone through those gates, people would believe it, and they would view the picture in a totally different perspective. Yeah. So... That's almost the most interesting thing I've been thinking about the past year is, is how does that happen? You know, like, because it's really not just quality based. No, not Sometimes it's just your profile. Longevity. A lot of it is being tagged to franchises or being tagged to, uh, you know, oh, I worked on Star Wars or sure. something. Yeah. You know. Intellectual property will do that for you pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, not to say that uh, James Gurney is a great painter, but Dinotopia kind of sent him over the edge, you know, so, or completely. Um, and there's that whole fake it till you make it mentality, too, where, you know, Kata and I were talking about this again in the hotel room, where okay, there's sort of like two or three tiers where okay let's say I'm, I'm in the showcase tier and or else I'm in the main show tier um, in each of those tiers it's like when you're in one then suddenly you have the confidence to aspire to the best in that tier whereas if you're in say the lower tier maybe maybe you just aspire to the highest level in that tier and so it's like I don't know maybe that's just me projecting but uh, I think a lot of it is we have built in glass ceilings based on what we have been uh, labeled as by others and, and what what awards we've got or, or what uh, what circles we associate with yeah. I mean I view it more as a, a personal 
um, journey with my art. Like I, I try not to concern myself too much with my standing and more with the art because I know probably for the bulk of my career I'm not going to earn that many awards. It's just not. You know, it's just not the kind of work that usually gets a, you know, like a Hugo or whatever. Um, so I try not to think about that kind of thing and just try to focus primarily on just improving my art. No, I, I agree with you and I'm the same, but my point is it's just, it's it's like mental limitations we may have or, you know, like if I say, oh, uh, I'm five foot six, I'll never be a basketball player, you know, it just sort of... Uh, this our our ego. Where does that come from? And you know that built-in understanding that you could be as as good as you really want to be. I think a lot of artists just have are self-limiting in a certain way, mm-hmm. and we all are. I think in, yeah. until we get more confidence to 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 see that the next level is reachable. Yeah, and I think also people are are limited by their just own personal. Um, Environment. So, like, if, 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 if a painter is really good, uh, has a lot of natural talent, but doesn't have the financial ability to work in anything else, but continuously chopping out $400 pieces, like, if they can't take the time to improve their work, because they're, they're limited by their finances or by their family situation, there's a lot of that going on, too, where... The, the guys that are legends usually have some sort of backing that, like, something in their life that allowed them to transition to the next level. Um, and so there's, within ourselves, there's limitations, but also externally, a lot of artists face really heavy because it's such a hard thing to make a living in. A lot of artists don't have the opportunity to raise their standing. Right. Well, it's, it's sort of a human journey. Uh, everyone is, um, is what, what is that line? Everyone is facing. Be kind because everyone's facing a great battle. You might not see it. Um, there are always these limitations. There are always these challenges. And there's the beauty in that because um, there are rites of passage that we have to go through to become what we want to go through. And these things, um, in a way, they're real, but in a way, they're false. We're only ever. We're only ever shown uh, uh, the path that we're walking. It's only ever lit about 10 feet in front of us, and then there's an abyss. And we have to trust that there's something more. And um, we have to walk towards that. They're always going to be challenges. And the strength is that when we get... If if there weren't any, there would be weakness in what we did. Mm -hmm. Um, We have to face them, and the fear only goes away when we do face them. Sometimes we pause, but the answer always comes back the same. How do we... I, I can't believe this is in front of me. Why, what, what am I supposed to do? I just want to sit here. Yeah. But the answer is always going to come back when you have to uh, move beyond it, move towards it. Uh, going back, um, going back to, to Fred's interest in, in Ryan's painting, uh, it's totally part of, of whether you want to call it the, the continuum or, or the continuum or the spirit of the thing. Fred is a collector, has been for a long time, has. Uh, uh, beautiful works in a lot of them and is a great supporter of um, revisiting the wellspring of information that existed um, prior to when it was hidden away. Um, so it's, it, it makes total sense that he'd be interested in Ryan's uh, paintings or the, or the illustrations or the, the, the pictures at, at Iluxcon because he sees that underneath the, the superficial the superficial, not limitations, but... <laughs> no, I know. He, he sees that there's there's 
there's respectable values to it, and it's it is carrying on a lot of the the traditions and the crafts and the adherences to the basic principles of good picture making, no matter what the size or what the format or what the content. And, yeah. and whatever time period something is done, it's going to be um, working within the constraints of that time period. But this, the spirit of the thing will will be the same for whatever for whatever era, and and then you and then it becomes difficult to d- divide things by eras. Um, so Fred understands that, that this is all part of, of uh, the spirit of why he started the art renewal um, and why he wants to support um, the continued. Um, understanding that with the roots of good principles uh, anything can be done in a lot of different directions yeah. so, well true because the funny thing is is you know you go to the Louvre and there's there's sections in the Louvre that are you know miniaturist paintings yeah and well how is that any different than a magic card you know there's there are paintings in the Louvre that are like eight by ten yeah and uh, so why why not it's just the fact that it hasn't been vetted yet. It hasn't been put in a museum. And as soon as it has that stamp of approval, you know, then suddenly, suddenly people consume it under the lens of, you know, instant trust, and they view it in a more positive light. Yeah. So we just need we need that uh, larger field to um, to validate, you know. Even though we don't need validation because, you know, we believe in what we're doing um, for for the values to increase and for the, the field to be expanded upon, there needs to be validation from outside sources and official sources. Yeah. The, the foundational principles are the same, but the variations are endless. So, it, 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 I mean, you can't, if you sever, you sever the roots of a tree, the leaves aren't going to grow. Um, but if the roots are maintained, you can grow in any direction you want to grow. Yeah. You know, and I was really happy. Like, I'm glad that that's going on because I know the the Art Renewal Center and some of the people that are big fans of that, uh, you know, they're very, very much into the Bougaros and the sort of, like, highly rendered decorative pictures. Um, and so it's interesting to see that that same guy is not really including imaginative realism. Yeah. Yep. Uh, oh, yeah. Thank you very much. He's not including imaginative realism because he's been talked into it. Yeah. He's including it. And the proof is he's buying it. So then there is a deeper appreciation there. And it's not, you know, it, it's not something he's doing just to be trendy or whatever. So yeah. that's really good to see. And then we also have to. Um, educate our fantasy fans that to expand their idea of what is fantasy. Thank you. Uh, because there's a lot of people that have been confused as to like some of my work. Like they'll gloss, they won't even look at it, um, and it's only like borderline fantasy, <laughs> imaginative realism. Right. So I think there needs to be an expansion on the fantasy uh, front as well to include to expand what is considered fantasy. Well, people like what they like, and they're fans of books, or they're fans of movies, or games. Um, and I don't know if that's necessarily a battle to be oh, had or won. It's, no, it's definitely not a battle, but I think the idea of what is considered fantasy also yeah. can, um, can expand, and we can help that. But I think, like, 
the traction to be gained is more within the other side of the equation, the people that haven't given fantasy art. That's true. That's Even a, uh, you know, that adds more roadblocks <laughs> to overcome. So, what do we have in here? I'm having a Reuben and fries. I'm having a Greek omelet. Uh, what did I order? It was a big salad. A Greek salad. Greek, Greek, Greek salad. salad. Has grape leaves on it? Yeah. Oh. You had a side of fries, right? Yeah. No. We've been here for probably 45 minutes and just got our food. And I would just like to touch on the point that I ordered meat toast, and I would just like to say again, so it's hard for Mike to edit, that Mike, <laughs> doesn't, Mike doesn't believe that it should be called wheat toast. It should be called whole wheat toast. Because all toast is made out of wheat. <laughs> I'm the only true and gentle Canadian. <laughs> I'm actually from the Caribbean, but, you know, I'm a Canadian. If too. this show was in Canada, <laughs> I would be getting a hard time from your side of the table. <laughs> I just want to keep harping on it so it's harder for you to edit. <laughs> and, and, and touching what, touching on, again, to be all too serious for the moment, on... Um, Something else that has, has uh, floated around my mind for a long time. Uh, the old paintings, what we call the old paintings, again, there's that, that, that silly distinction, but the, the old paintings were, uh, if, you were, if you were to take a character or a, a person from a Rubens painting or an Ang painting and you, and you were to have them walk around in real life, uh, they would look like aberrations, like aliens, because there yeah. is an aspect of distortion that um, uh, is cast over and across the designing and the interpretation of, of, of the piece that is consistent. So it's a, it, it creates a one-world effect. And in the old days, I, I hate to say that, but in the old days, in my days when I was a, um, you used abstract principles over which you would put stuff that looked like stuff that you would use to interpret the written text in visual form. So these, this was illustration, abstract painting, and stuff that looked like stuff. Whether you want to call it realism or not, it's, it's up to you. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and a lot of trouble came about when those things were divided into, into separate things. Um, again, schisms, they suck. Yeah. <laughs> the great thing is just like as illustrators as painters in this field I think I can sort of speak for most of the guys in this show here where we don't really consider us, ourselves just jobbing illustrator hacks like we want to make art and it just happens to be the place where they're paying for it right now that's true and it's just interesting that there's a built in Understanding amongst all of us that that we're artists first and foremost, and we're looking at those principles first and foremost when we do our work. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the problem is maybe you know we're talking about a, an era, you know maybe we're talking early to mid part of the 20th century where there was a lot of illustration that was just crassly commercial or you know. Like Pat has said before, when people think of fantasy art, a lot of people think of, you know, googly-eyed monsters. Pulp, pulp magazine. Right, covers. and not to say that that stuff didn't have great no, artistic stuff, merit. That stuff is coming around. But, you know, you associate the entire genre with maybe some of the lowest right. examples. So, 
But those examples are sort of few and far between in this particular field here, at the museum at LXCon, yeah. amongst the sort of like more artistic clients. And that's why I think this transition is taking place, or the fields, the lines in the fields are blurring, is because these qualities are a no-brainer to us when we're considering our work. Mm -hmm. Nom, 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 nom. We're chewing. How's your ruben like? It's good. The sloppier, the better. It's not like 45-minute ruben good. There's a place down the street we've been getting breakfast all week. And it takes them about five minutes. <laughs> so but, we're missing about half an hour of the hey, show that's today. A, that's, a good, that's a good thing about um, the United States is they're Rubens. They're Rubens, yeah. I love them in the museum. Do they have, you love oh, come on. No, you missed that. No! They're Rubens. The <laughs> ah, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.